Ladies and gentlemen, attention everyone. Welcome to No Picks After Dark. It's your boy Nick Burke, and you are now tuned in to the hottest podcast in the world with Aaron Dante, giving you the hottest interviews with the dopest people, sharing their experiences from your neighborhood all around to the world. Voted Best Baltimore Podcast by you, the listeners. Now, your host, Aaron Dante. Yo, Aaron, talk to him. Welcome to the No Picks After Dark Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Dante, and I'm so excited that we are closing in on the amazing season finale of the Mixtape Volume 1. Thank you for all the listeners out there who have listened from Baltimore and all across the United States. We have all 50 states that have listened to this season, which is amazing, amazing, and I'm just blessed to have this platform and people to be listening. So, again... We're closing on the season finale on the mixtape volume one. Please, if you haven't, catch up. And again, thank you so much to all the listeners out there and all the supporters. Appreciate you. Visit your neighborhood sanctuary and do wellness for a luxurious experience for everybody. Treat yourself and a loved one with a massage, facial, or an entire day of pampering with our deluxe spa day packages that include lunch from the restaurant next door firing rice for more information on booking or purchasing gift cards visit their website at andowellness.com or call at 443-438-4048 they look forward to welcoming you and your loved ones to their beautiful new space at soha union located at 4801 harper road suite one Good evening, good day, good morning, good night. How you doing, beautiful and lovely people? How you doing, him, her, them, theirs, and ours? Hopefully everybody is having a great one today. What's going on? No picks out the dark. What's up, Aaron Dante? Feeling good, brother. Feeling good. Outstanding, brother. Outstanding. Always good to be with you and the beautiful listeners. First of all, I want to give a major, major shout out to TT the Artist and Issa Rae. Coming out April 15th on Netflix, Dark City. Go check that out. It is a great documentary that shines light on Baltimore City in a beautiful way. Forget about The Wire. Forget about all that trauma porn. Trust me, this is a good one that you all need to go and see. It's going to make you smile. It's going to make you dance. It's going to make you feel good about your city. Moving on to fun things. Here in Baltimore City, I feel like we have if not the best in the country, one of the coolest mayors, Mayor Brandon Scott. Big shots out to him, doing a great job. He loves to get comical from time to time. If you go to his Instagram, you will see that he is encouraging everyone to get a shot. And not only is he encouraging you to get a shot, he's using a little bit of humor as well. I checked on his site the other day, and I went to Mayor Scott's Instagram, and there was a picture of him next to the old domino sign, and it says, Mayor Scott, I take Viagra. That's made by Pfizer. But I won't be taking the vaccine. Does that make sense? And you know they cut out all the letters and just left the no. (laughs) So I love it, man. I want to make sure everybody out there gets vaccinated. Please do go down there, stand in line, let them poke you. And then after that, have a beautiful life. You know what I'm saying? Also, speaking of the vaccine, they did decide to just go ahead and just scrap that. I remember a couple of weeks ago, I was telling y'all how in the city of Baltimore, 15 million doses got messed up. That was like the that was the the prefix to like they 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 knew what they were trying to do. They were just trying to get it out of here. So 
Thankfully, we only working with Moderna and Pfizer right now. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, Moderna is kind of like, you know what I'm saying? It's like a real cool, like, like high, you know what I'm saying? Like, like you'll you be all right. But that Pfizer, though, to the moon, to the moon. I, I suggest you get that Pfizer, you know. Regardless of what you do, be safe, save your community, save yourself, make sure you get vaccinated. A little bit of fun note here before you leave. Here the other day in the city, you can check it out. Seems like we've been having this problem for a while. But there was a located foot. Just just a just a located foot. Just somebody just found a foot. Like, hey man, what'd you locate here? A foot. A foot. So just watch out sometimes, you know, these little back alley clinics and stuff. I don't know what type of diabetes that person had, but hopefully they just went on about their day and eased on down the road. My name is Ivan Martin. Thank you all very much. Hope you have a beautiful day. Hope you have a great one. Keep smiling. Keep being beautiful. Love you, Baltimore. Peace. The No Picks After Dark podcast is proudly sponsored by Maggie's Farm. Located at 4341 Hartford Road, Maggie's Farm offers a unique dining experience with delicious handcrafted cocktails and mouth-awarding cuisine from falafel to scallops and everyone's favorite honey sriracha cauliflower wings. Open for dinner from 4 p.m. until 10 p.m. Wednesday through Saturday and serving brunch Saturday 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. and Sunday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. with delectable chicken and waffles, shrimp and grits, biscuits and gravy, and more. Check out Maggie's Farm on Instagram and Facebook for daily and weekly food specials as well. Hello, 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 everyone. It's your girl, Chamara E. Fleming, but you can call me my. I'm the host of the Purple Charm Experience podcast, and today I want to share with you my quote of the day. Life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself by George Bernard Shaw. In order to be able to create yourself, you have to know who you are. You have to know what it is you were meant to do in life. What is your purpose? Why are you here? How are you going to accomplish those things? That is what being and creating who you are and who yourself is means. So whatever your passion is, go after it. Whatever your purpose is, make sure you know it. Because that, that is the message in creating who you are. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please join me in listening to my podcast. I am a romance author and I enjoy talking about love and romance. And on my podcast, I share my books And I'll also share with you the nuances of me being a new author and an entrepreneur. I'll also share with you motivational and inspirational quotes, much like the one you heard today. And every week I'll give you a fun cocktail or wine choice that I love in the segment that I call My Sip of the Week. And if you enjoy Prince, like I do, I'm a huge Prince fan, and I talk about him too. So, without further delay, please enjoy the rest of the show. At Fishnet, every plate served starts with the freshest, high-quality fish, sourced from local waters whenever possible. You get fine dining excellence delivered in a cozy, unpretentious, fast-casual setting. 
Delicious does not even begin to describe it. Everything I've tried is made from scratch and incredible. The best fish I've ever had. Check them out for lunch or dinner at Mount Vernon Marketplace. Get caught in the fishnet. You'll be glad you did. Menu and details at eatfishnet.com. Welcome to the No Picks After Dark podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Dante. You know, I always tell people women's history is 365 days a year, and it's 366 days on leap year. And my next guest, let me tell you, I first heard about her through some alumni, and I was like, who is this person that everybody keeps on talking about? You know, and I'm like, I've been gone for college for oh, since 03 since Syracuse, but everybody keeps on talking about this one person. And I was like, let me, let me investigate a little bit more. So I investigated. Like, okay, she, she, she's, she's legit. She's legit. And then she popped up on the Syracuse Alumni podcast. And I was like, all right, let me listen to this episode. And I was just, I was blown away, blown away by everything she was talking about. And like, it just was a beautiful thing. And I, again, uh, there's not enough days for Women's History Month, but we're going to continue this. Keep it rocking and rolling. So without further ado, I mean, her bio was so long, we'd be here all day talking about her bio. But before we even get into all that, let me introduce you to Miss Allie Curtis. How are you doing today? I am doing wonderful. How are you doing, Dante? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I am so happy that you're on the No Picks of the Dark podcast. It's such a blessing and honor to have you on the show. And, uh, you know, there's so much that we can unpack and, and go behind the curtain and so much about you. So again... We both went to Syracuse University. We went different times. But again, she came with my radar through Alumni Network. And I was like, she's doing some big things out here, you know? And I just wanted to, you know, explain people a little bit about who you are. And, you know, where, where, are, you, where are you calling from? So I'm calling you from Rhode Island. Uh, Rhode Island's been my home for now most of my life, but it hasn't always been the case. I've been all over, but since 2010, I've been in Rhode Island and it is definitely a very special place to me. Nice, nice, nice. So I guess, you know, what's the quick background? You know, I know you have a lot, but give us a quick <laughs> about you. Cause I mean, give us like the uh, cliff note version. I know we have a whole sure. lot. But tell us a little Cliff Note version about you. I know um, you went to Syracuse for college. What else? I mean, just give us a little background. So obviously, I'm a very proud orange woman. That pride runs deep. After I left Syracuse, I went to Brown University to get my MPA. And that was at the same time I had won Miss Rhode Island. And I went on from being Miss Rhode Island to enlisting in the Army National Guard. And today I have two dual roles um, in the National Guard. I'm both the Deputy State Public Affairs Officer, and then I'm a Fire Direction Officer in our Field Artillery Battalion. And there's a lot we can unpack with all of that, uh, but it's definitely been an exciting journey since being with the Orange. That's, that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, I've got so many things going on. Again, I've been mm-hmm. in the works for like three or four months, so I know <laughs> I'm again, I'm just like, finally, we got this interview. Finally, I'm so happy. <laughs> so, folks, if you don't hear it in my voice, it's, it's, you know, I always come with the heavy hitters. I mean, I'm giving you facts and number love out here. So I'm so excited for, for you to come on the show. So for the QS alumni out there and for the people who are just introduced to it, what is your fondest memory of going to Syracuse University? Because, I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to lie. It was cold as hell. It's <laughs> 
we had snow days in May. We didn't even have snow. It snowed all the time. But I, my fondest memory for me would be my friends, all the connectors I met throughout that time, four years. You know, we braved the snow together. We walked <laughs> long hill. You know, we'd so, but what about you? So it's funny you talk about the snow because, of course, that is a big component of Syracuse. I had come to Syracuse from California and that was a huge culture shock. Um, one of the most defining things about my time at Syracuse was my involvement in student government. And even when Syracuse was snowy, even when academics were hitting me hard, and even when it, it was, a, you know, a, a tough battle to bear at Syracuse in the midst of just getting through the academic undergraduate life and trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life after. Um, student government was the big thing that was always there for me. And that even wasn't always very wonderful. Um, there were some tough times there. Um, it was difficult. I learned a lot of lessons, but those are the people that got me through. And those are people that I'm still connected to today and lessons that I've learned from my time in student government have carried on. And more so um, just like the shaping of how student government and women's representation as leaders on campus shaped my perspective and what I did after Syracuse. Um, that's really where it all started for me. And I know we're going to dive a little bit into uh, women's history, which as you said, is all days of the year, not just women's history month. Um, that experience that I had at Syracuse uh, has been really profound and has definitely landed me where I am today, whether or not that path was particularly linear. I love it. I love it. I, you know, I always, you know, I never ran, ran for student government. I never did it in Syracuse. I was a, a, just a student, but I remember friends running for president and student body vice president, all that good mm -hmm. stuff. It was always, one of those people that was like, hey, you know a lot of people. Can you get them to vote for me? And I was like, I need to know your platform. I just don't yeah. get Yeah. Uh, it was a good time. So it was definitely a good time. I like you talking about that. So that shapes you pretty much. That Was that one of the things that when you got into your body, were you in like, model? were you in, in high school? Was that something that was always carried through the student body to get into politics of that nature? And then, because that, 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 that's a whole different ball game once you start. <laughs> It totally is. And I was not in student government in high school. I had run for student government. I lost my election um, during my freshman year. And even that was a good experience because you can never win if you don't ever put yourself out there. And there were times at Syracuse where I even thought, wow, like this run for student body president is going to be incredibly difficult. And it was. Um, and there were times I talked myself out of wanting to doing it. And then I realized you know, don't talk yourself out of the dream or the goal or whatever you think you can do. Um, you're absolutely capable of it. So uh, it was not something I did before Syracuse. I was a student athlete in high school. I was a drama nerd in high school. I was on the speech and debate team. And I thought going into um, student government would be an interesting segue into politics because I was a political science major. And the thing that I had learned, and I, I, went to a student government meeting during my first week at Syracuse because I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I saw the student body president speak at our initial uh, orientation. Um, I just knew that that would be a good way to start getting involved around campus. And I went into a student government meeting and I looked around the room and I'm like, am I lost? Is this a fraternity council meeting? I don't know if I'm in the right place. And I saw a couple of other 
wide-eyed freshman, uh, Jaren the headlights type that I'm like, okay, yeah, we're all in the same place. Like we're going to sit together. Um, and what I started picking up on was that there weren't a lot of women in student government. And I was sent to a student government conference, um, kind of was a last minute need. They needed to send someone and I volunteered myself as a freshman and I get to the student government conference. And of course I look around there too, and see the same thing. And I'd started talking to, um, one of the directors from that program saying, Hey, do you guys have numbers about like how many women are serving in student government? Um, there was a particular um, conference um, or breakaway session at the conference about women in student government. And um, I was just so taken by this. And what I learned was if you look at the top hundred colleges in the United States at the time, like only 20% of executive roles were held by women. And then if you were to look at the breakaway from, or the breakdown from president to vice president, like you have so few women as president and it was about a 50, 50 split vice president to president. So I started taking this into my own studies and saying, well, how does this correlate this pipeline, if you will, on college campuses? Cause these are people who are probably going to run for office and be involved in their communities outside. How does that correlate? with our local governments or the United States Congress? And where is this breaking point that's keeping women from being in these positions? And of course, what I found was that there are a lot of women who say they wanna do this and they have that goal in their heart or they wanna support their community, but because of sexism and double standards and the lack of support for motherhood or just the sexism around motherhood um, and how women are perceived in the workplace really deters women from entering these positions. And that was really something that I took away from Syracuse and said, well, I'm gonna change this and we're gonna lead the charge on this in everything that I can do. Wow, you just broke down something I didn't even know about it. Wow, you just, you're spitting the gospel right now. I, I love it. You're dropping what I tell people, we drop jewels and gems on the show. You just did. Yeah. I had some, wow. I'm, I'm thinking back about my college days. Mm-hmm. I don't, having a male a female student body president i didn't have one and i was there from 9903 and i really remember mm-hmm. it was all males who came up to me and were like hey vote for me vote for yeah. me yeah huh. and you know what's interesting so i actually got the numbers at syracuse and i want to say in like a 60-year history of the student government i was the eighth woman to be a student body president and then beyond that there was a period of time where it was like maybe one guy would run for president, one or two guys would run for president. When I announced I was running for president, three guys came out of the woodworks and said, well, we're going to run. I was student body president at the time. And I'm like, well, clearly I know what I'm doing. And I've already been here essentially doing this job in some capacity. And is it, you know, maybe more realistic to see you run for student body president when the person who's declared as a female. Um, I don't know. Those are things that we can speculate, but they're certainly all tied in to the underlying reasons why women just take themselves out of the game or have been on the sidelines. And of course, luckily things have changed so much in the past decade. I came to Syracuse at, um, as a freshman in 2010. And, um, you know, back then I, 
had hoped but didn't know that we would have a female vice president, that we would see this wave of women running for Congress, that we would see more women taking action because they saw things that were important to them coming up for question, whether it's Supreme Court rulings or public policy. And I'm just so thankful to still be in that space, but see so many other women who are are taking charge and getting off the sidelines. Love that. I love that. I love that. I'm sitting here over here taking notes right now. I'm sitting over here like, <laughs> so you left CUSE and Brown University. Is that correct? Brown University? I read some. Yeah. So funny story. Actually, I loved Syracuse so much. I came to my senior year and decided I didn't want to leave. So I applied for graduate school and got in at Syracuse and was set to start in the fall. And I got a fellowship with an organization called Running Start in Washington, D.C. And it is a nonpartisan nonprofit that would take a handful of women every um, semester, whether it was spring or fall, and they would place these women. So they'd get women from all different backgrounds, um, especially women who didn't necessarily have the means, because this is a huge entry in itself to the political arena. It costs so much to live in DC. Most of the time, interns on the Hill are unpaid. Um, You need to have generational wealth in order to support you even surviving in DC and being able to take on an unpaid internship. So that's a huge problem there with the barrier of what types of people are coming into interns trip roles and eventually entering politics, you're missing a huge part of the organization. And for sure, my family definitely couldn't have supported me in doing that. So Running Start makes it possible. And they do this with a fellowship um, and a scholarship provided from Walmart. And they pull, at the time, I think it was like seven women per semester. It's grown. They pull women into a house in DC, place them with a female member of Congress for the semester. And you spend Monday through Thursday working with that member of Congress. And then you spend your Fridays in political mentoring with different women from all different facets, whether it's lobbying, other people who work on the Hill, Um, women in fundraising, uh, women in the media, having these mentorship sessions with women who are huge movers and shakers in Washington, D.C. and beyond. And naturally, when I was offered this, I knew that I would take that and then uh, go to Syracuse later on. And then lo and behold, I ended up applying to Brown um, because they were changing their uh, public policy program from two years to one year. I could live at home, uh, go back to Rhode Island, commute to campus and knock out an MPA in a year. So it was a no brainer to me. Wow. I have never heard of that program. Wow. It's incredible. Yeah, it really, really is. They um, have had other alums go on to be um, representatives at the state level, uh, women who have run in their communities, who have held other public offices. And I'm sure as we look to the future of politics over the next five, 10 years, you're going to be hearing about Running Start because their alumni are the ones who are going to be at the decision-making table in so many spaces. I love to hear that. I love to have that. I love to hear that. That's, you know, we, we, I want equal playing field for everybody out here. Absolutely. I'm seeing the same old people all the time. <laughs> That's a whole political thing I have, but it is. But yeah, I love seeing the new people coming there with fresh ideas. And Absolutely. Because the same old way is just got to go. We got we to gotta change. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> you went to Brown. Mm-hmm. And what did you major there? What was your major at Brown? You said you said 
studied public policy. So they had taken the public policy program, turned it into a one-year program. So technically it's a master of public affairs, but I was studying policy at Brown. And so much of that was with the knowledge that I did want to run for public office and that I'd be using the tools I got from the Brown program and applying them back to my community in Rhode Island. So it's important to me too. I looked at other schools and when it came down to it, I just applied to Brown for my MPA. And um, I'd applied to Syracuse for information security management because as you know, Syracuse has some really wonderful programs, Newhouse, Maxwell, the iSchool. And I had the Newhouse Maxwell experience and I kind of thought, you know, what do I want to do as a public official? I have a penchant for technology and I want to come in with this young energy. And if you watched any of the hearings of Congress and some of the members of Congress try to talk about Facebook or digital media. There's so much that is so lost on so many elected officials. And I thought, well, if I study information security and apply that to what I do as an elected official, that really is a place for me to use my voice for something that I care about deeply. So obviously I didn't stay at Syracuse beyond the one semester I did online for grad school, went to Brown. And while I was at Brown, I was concurrently juggling that with being Miss Rhode Island. Miss Rhode Island. So uh, well, we're jumping all around. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I like going with the flow. So Miss Rhode Island. Yes. Let's talk about this. So when I think of these things, I think of, so this is going to sound cheesy, Miss <laughs> Congeniality. I, I do like that. It's a great movie. Miss Rhode Island wins. I always say that's the most unrealistic component of Miss Congeniality because Miss Rhode Island has never won Miss America, never even close. So <laughs> I like those type of movies. Okay. I like Valentine's Day. I like those little movies. Okay. But um, what made you want to jump in that race and get in there and become a beauty pageant and get in, and get in involved because there's so many platforms in there that I think are very important to be told, you know, mm-hmm. it's not about, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, but you know, your points and where you stand in the world, what made you want to jump into that arena knowing that you're like, all right, I want to go, I want to be a Congress. I want to be Senate. I want to be vice president. What made you want to go that route? So we'll, we'll take this back a little bit to high school. It was middle school. I was just getting ready to graduate from middle school. And there was a show on MTV that I started watching about pageants. And I felt that the women who were portrayed in this TV show were portrayed in a very negative light. And I thought to myself, there's got to be more to this pageant thing. If women are pouring money into it, if they are competing time after time, going through the disappointment, you know, what is it about this that makes women keep coming back? And like so much of reality TV, you don't see the full thing. And around that time, I randomly got a brochure in the mail for this pageant called National American Miss. And I said to my parents, I want to try this and see what this is all about. And at the time, I was a terrible public speaker. I would get nervous like you wouldn't believe. I mean, it is the number one fear in America, public speaking. And it was not something I could do effectively. And I had wanted to go into journalism. That was kind of like my initial goal. I thought journalism or politics or I'll do journalism and then politics. And my parents were like, well, her daughter doesn't have the at all capability to do either of these things right now, (laughs) but maybe pageants will help turn her around. So my mom said, okay, you're going to do this pageant. 
this isn't going to be something that we become obsessive with, um, that you're going to, you know, get all emotional about. It's not going to be dramatic. Uh, you're just going to do this. It's going to be a growing and learning experience before you enter high school. And we are going to put you in the optional speech competition because this is a learning experience. And I gave a speech about what friendship means to me. I talked about my best friend. Um, I was 14 years old. I had no idea what I was doing. And I didn't place at all. There was like 130 contestants. And there was like a top 25. And I didn't even make the top 25. But I took away so much from that weekend. I loved the other women that I met. I felt this energy from being around so many women who were doing awesome things, wanted to make changes for the better in their communities. And I thought, you know, I, I definitely lost. But I didn't really lose because I took away so much from it. So I started thinking about what I would do next if I wanted to compete again. And I went to high school that year. I ran for student um, vice president for the freshman class. I lost. I lost with grace because I realized winning isn't everything. Um, I started feeling more confident, raising my hand, asking questions in class, even if I was worried about sounding dumb. Um, I'd put myself out there with other public speaking engagements. And by the middle point of my freshman year of high school, I thought, well, you know what? Like there was definitely merits to this pageant thing. And we'll try this again. And I'll try to like watch some YouTube videos and figure out how I can improve. And I went back the next year and got second runner up. And from there I was like, okay, I could be good at this thing. And this is, this is fun and it's exciting and it's exhilarating. And pageants just became a part of my life. And it was something I did to flex a muscle that I didn't always have. And that was confidence and the ability to put myself out there. And that changed so much for me. Like I can't imagine the trajectory of my life without having that. And that's what kept me around. And of course things started to run their course with the pageant that I was involved in. I had aged out of it. And I thought, well, why don't I give Miss America a try? Because they offer college scholarships and I could certainly use some money paying for Syracuse. So I entered the Miss Upstate New York pageant thinking, you know, I'm like one of 20 contestants here. There's no way I'm going to do this. And I had had my parents send up all my stuff from high school and just threw on some wardrobe and sang a song from a uh, production of the Little Mermaid I did as a senior in high school. And I ended up winning Miss Upstate New York. And then that's when I really realized I, if I keep applying myself to this, I could win Miss State, Miss New York, Miss Rhode Island, what have you. And winning Miss Rhode Island actually gave me a full graduate scholarship to Salve Regina, where I studied administration of justice, homeland security with a focus on cyber. So I did get that cyber piece and the information security component of my education I was looking for. And I got it at no cost because I was Miss Rhode Island. Now, you have said something, you said a lot of things there. You said a lot of beautiful things that really hit home and resonated with me. One, one thing stuck, stuck out to me. And then you said, you know, when you're younger, it was hard for you to speaking in public, talking and doing things of that nature. So I'm going to give a quick little one minute thing. So my first class at Syracuse was public speaking 101. And if you know anything about that class, folks, it's a rough one because the first class I tell at first at the first class, we took, you're like, here's a video camera where you're going to talk and you're going to talk about you yourself. And, you know, you think you can talk, you think you know what you're doing and film, you see yourself on film and then they replay it in front of the whole entire classroom. And then you shrink into the seat because you're like, I sound terrible. 
I sound horrible. And I remember that like it was yesterday. And that's one of the reasons why I do this podcast. Because I'm like, you know what? I learned from that. I, I want to be <laughs> I want to be clear. I want to dictate what I'm saying so people can pronunciate and hear what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Not because you are oh, you overcome that. You were like, you know what? I'm gonna figure this out. I'm gonna make this work for me and I'm gonna get better. I'm gonna keep on going, trying, keep on going, keep on pushing. You didn't stop till you achieved your goals. And to me, that hits home. And I know it's for a lot of people out there who are listening who have kids who have gone through situations. Keep on pushing, keep on motivating yourself, keep on doing it. You know, don't say I can't. Try. Keep on pushing. And I love that you said that. So thank you so much. I mean, you said a lot, but that stuck out to me because that was relatable to me. And you're singing, you know, the Mer- Little Mermaid song. I mean, I'm not going to lie. The drama school with Syracuse was pretty cool. The, the theater people were really cool. So yeah, that's a whole different episode. I love theater people. <laughs> those, those, those were some good people. So Miss Rhode Island comes, you, you become Miss Rhode Island. And is this during the time of Brown or you're out of Brown or this? So you got, you're juggling like a lot of stuff at this point. So I know we're going to segue into what I'm doing now eventually, but essentially we get to this point in 2015 where in the course of 10 days, so I'm like, all right, 10 days, we have 240 hours here. I am competing for Miss Rhode Island. And that's like a several day long process between interviews and rehearsals and the actual show competing for Miss Rhode Island. I'm taking the ASVAB for entry into the United States Armed Forces. And I'm also starting my master's at Brown. So all of these things were happening at once. Miss Rhode Island happened first. And I realized I'm like, I can do all three of these things. I can't do all three of them at once. And while I was in DC, I had had this epiphany that I wanted to join the army. So that was kind of what I was pursuing at the time under wraps. It was more so like, hey, I'm going to Brown, but like, trying to get the paperwork in here because I didn't necessarily have full family support on that front. Um, I do now, which is wonderful, but it was really difficult to get them on board up front. Mm-hmm. And I'd won Rhode Island and I started at Brown and I, I kind of pumped the brakes on the army piece, took the exam and said, we're going to get back to this later. And I started at Brown as I was preparing for Miss America. So I won at the end of May and come September it was go time for Miss America. So, so much of that period was media appearances and other community engagements and practices and everything you need to do leading up to Miss America. And that was really difficult for me as a student. Uh, I had to retake a couple of classes because I'm not perfect and there's only so many hours in a day. So people are like, how'd you do it? And I'm like, I didn't, I stumbled through it. It was a disaster, but I came back and we made it happen. Went to Miss America. Did not place, which was fine. I was a a quality of life finalist and the quality of life award is given to um, contestants who have done a significant piece of work with their platform. My platform was leading ladies, which was inspired by everything I had done at Syracuse and then beyond that. So I was speaking at everything from elementary schools to colleges about women in leadership and getting into leadership and why it's important to have diverse perspectives in various decision-making tables from boardrooms to battlefields to the United States Congress. And being Miss Rhode Island, while I didn't become Miss America, and that's fine, was amazing because it gave me that opportunity so frequently to have these discussions with people in my community and 
shed some light on the fact that like, hey, women are vastly underrepresented in a lot of really critical spaces. Women deal with a lot of different things. And some of those things are because of internalized misogyny and how we have these societal perceptions of women. Sometimes it's even woman on woman. Like we expect that there's only room for one of us in the room. There's only one of us in the organization or in leadership. In reality, no one has ever questioned, well, it's a room full of men. Uh, you know, how many spaces are there for the males? Uh, but with women, we sometimes look at each other as competition when in reality, these are our sisters. These are people we can support. So I focused my time as Miss Rhode Island on working on changing these perspectives and finding ways that we can have these discussions about why it is so important to have women and then just a diverse array of people, especially in our government, taking the charge. Folks, give us 30 seconds and we'll be right back because he says something about the army and the military. We're going to get into that because we're like, wait, wait, military, army, what's going on with that? So she gave you a little sneak preview. So we'll be right back after 30 seconds, folks. No Picks After Dark podcast is sponsored by the Charm City Craft Mafia, Baltimore's best local craft fair, presenting Pile of Craft, a virtual craft show on the last Saturday of April, featuring handmade stationery, apparel, jewelry, ceramics, wall art, body care, small batch food gifts, and more. Crafted by makers in Baltimore and the region. Pile of Craft will be on April 24th, 2021. For more information, please go to charmcitycraftmafia.com and on Instagram and Facebook at Charm City Craft Mafia. Welcome back, folks. And now uh, we're here with Miss Allie Curtis. And I mean, she's dropping jewels and gems for all you guys out here. Ladies and gentlemen, I mean, I have been taking notes. I mean, I feel like I'm going to church today. And it's only on Saturday. Church is, only, church is in session. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just to recap, she's been brilliant. She's done so many amazing things. Student body uh, council president, uh, fellowships uh, for, 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 um, for schooling, for uh, going down to D.C., working with politicians, doing things, going to Brown University. Also, you know, just doing Miss America pageant. I mean, this, this woman's doing everything, doing everything and just grinding out and making it happen. So she's really, really nonchalant about the military. We're like, okay, beauty pageant, the military, Brown University. How does it all fit in? Where do we get the military? Why? Because you said something about at first people were like, why do you want military? I got a little feedback. Why would you want to go in the military? That's the first question I would I guess are probably asking. So there were a lot of different pieces that piqued my interest in joining the National Guard. Uh, when I was in D.C. and I was walking the halls of Congress every day, I had definitely felt a call to public service, but I wasn't totally sold on what I was doing there. So I kind of was like, well, where else can I get that sentiment that I'm doing something that serves others? And um, it was something that kept coming up because I'm looking for ways to pay for graduate education. Thing that kept coming up was the military, great source of supporting yourself in education. And initially I'm, you know, looking at, okay, what kind of job do I want to have? Or am I going to go to grad school? Or how can I 
maybe pursue the military. And I realized the National Guard was a great way of doing so because you can be part-time and still be a full-time student, or you can be part-time and have a job elsewhere. So I'm looking more into the National Guard. My interest is peaked. Um, and then, of course, I just had an inherent curiosity with the military, being in D.C. and hearing all about defense legislation, defense spending, defense this, that, and the other. We have wars overseas. Uh, we have multiple branches of the military, and you hear different jargon and different people talking about, you know, this is what the Navy's like in the Army and the Air Force. And I, I just developed this huge curiosity and it was an insatiable curiosity to the point where I'm like, I should join myself and see what this is all about. And part of this too, was that my curiosity for the military was also what can the military provide me as a leader? And I always say leadership is not something that you accomplish. You don't put on your uniform one day when you become an officer and say, cool, I made it. I'm a leader. You don't win an election and say, cool, got it. Check the box there. I'm a leader. Um, it's something that you continually have to practice and you never fully arrive and you have to continuously grow and find ways that you can serve the people that you work alongside and that you lead. And I thought, well, maybe the military is a great place for me to learn and learn this in a way, um, in an environment where at some point your decisions are going to have a life or death impact. And you're going to have to deal with critical decision making in a way that you would never have in the civilian work environment. So all of those components working together made me decide that I definitely needed to join and the Army was the place I wanted to be. So I started getting my papers together, had this huge packet you have to put together when you're going to go through an enlistment. And I'm like moving around my parents, like I'm still living in their house. I'm trying to like pull my birth certificate or do this, that, and the other. And um, my parents, when I had mentioned it to them casually, they were like, yeah, no, our daughter's not going to the RV. No way. No way. You? Mm-mm. So I'm like, well, I don't really have the support there. My mother would get um, just beside herself anytime I'd bring it up. And she's like, you can't be serious. You're not actually doing this. And I tried selling it in different ways. Like it'll help with my student loans. It'll help with education. And I'm like, in the you know reality of this all is it doesn't matter if it's going to help me with my education. I've now made up my mind and I want to do this. So um, my dad drove me to take the ASVAB, which is the initial entry exam. Um, he seemed supportive enough of it. My mom was still not on board. And then I had become this Rhode Island. So my parents were like, okay, maybe she'll get this out of her system and she doesn't want to do this. And I thought to myself too, I'm like, if I really want to do this, like I, I will. After Miss Rhode Island, after Brown, after I get these huge things consuming my time and energy off the table and have had the experience, I do have to make decisions about my career moving forward. And I think this might be it. And lo and behold, I'm getting towards the end of my year at Brown, the end of my time um, as Miss Rhode Island. And a former Miss Vermont calls me and says, what are you doing this fall? I need a campaign manager. So I think, again, I'm like, I still want to be in the military, but maybe I take a few months and go run a campaign for a woman because that is totally up my alley. And um, I spent five months in Vermont, had a wonderful experience, lost the campaign, but learned so much along the way. And then I came back to Rhode Island and it wasn't long before I was back in the recruiter's office getting everything ready to go. 
So shortly thereafter, I enlisted as a human resources specialist, um, went through all of the initial training. And when I came back from uh, my basic training, which is our, our boot camp, and then um, init- or I'm sorry, AIT, so advanced individual training, where you go to train for your specific job, um, there was an opening for a public affairs um, specialist. And uh, the public affairs officer at the time said, well, you have this background in public relations, like maybe you come take this job. So I did. And not, not before long, I ended up in officer candidate school. So it was a very short lived career as human resources specialist. Um, I went through officer candidate school. And as I was moving through officer candidate school, um, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do as an officer. So now it's like, you have to pick a new job all over again. And I had heard about this policy that the army had instated called leader first policy. And of course, in my lifetime um, and in, in the past decade, in the past five years, things have changed so much for women in the armed services. There is no limit to what women can do. We have all positions open, including combat roles for women. So I hear about this policy. And it requires that in combat arms specific units, you need to have a female officer or non-commissioned officer come into the unit before the unit can take any junior enlisted females. And I immediately knew that that would be an opportunity for me to help open up doors for other women and also take on kind of an uncharted territory for myself. And I was very fascinated with going into combat arms because again, like that critical leadership decision-making that happens in life or death situations and also doing something totally different than anything I'd have in the civilian workforce. So I decided to go into field artillery. Um, I go into a cannon artillery unit. And if you had told me back when I was Miss Rhode Island or back when I was Syracuse, that you're going to be an officer in a cannon artillery unit in the army one day, I would have laughed, <laughs> but here we are. And, um, that is a huge part of what I do now. And it's exciting to see other women now coming in, um, either as recruits, um, or brand new soldiers and saying like, Hey, I want to be in artillery and being able to say, yeah, cool. There's space for you here and we can have you. So I'm excited to see as this unfolds and we're still looking for other women leaders and so many facets of the military, but having women in spaces that have been traditionally male dominated, um, is definitely, um, a game changer. But there's also a lot of criticism still to this day. I mean, there was national discussion in the past month about how the United States military is becoming female. And female was used, um, or it's becoming more feminine. Feminine was used as a negative. And whether your military is masculine or feminine or you're applying these gendered lenses to your military does not detract from our overall efficacy. It does not take away from our lethality. It does not take away from what we're able to do. Um, It adds to the equation. And anytime you put something um, like that, like a gendered perspective on the military or any organization in a negative light, um, you're doing a disservice, whether we're, we're saying, you know, being female is inherently bad or masculine is good these things are insidious and it's not helpful to anyone what was their response when you went into that uh you know that realm and was there were there men that were like what is she doing here like or, or i mean was it there was i mean i always wondered that was it a was it like just hey come on in ha- have fun you know or, or was it a little 
pushback when you got in there. Like, you know, you're doing artillery. I mean, you're in there. You're getting yeah. like, was there a warm reception or was it kind of like, let's see if she can do this? Or was it like, I've had different reactions from both men and women. And there's a woman that I have a great admiration for. And and we've talked about this um, before between other women in the service and how like even we have internalized these kind of insidious thoughts and detrimental thoughts because of gender stereotypes. And this one female officer said to me, oh, you want to go into field artillery? Why? Um, And she later corrected herself and she said, you know, I just assumed because like that's such a male dominated space and you're in the field and it's gritty. I just assumed you wouldn't want to do that. And it was wrong of me to assume that. And I'm like, you know what? I've been in the same space too, where I was talking to a new recruit and I was like, what do you want to do? Like human resources? And I'm like, yeah, that's like what I came in at. And then she's like, no, I want to be in artillery. And I'm like, okay, whoa, (laughs) I need to check myself here because we can't be gendering different roles within the military or any organization. It's, it's fair game for anyone. Um, And yeah, I've, I've heard the same thing too, where men are like, oh, the army's just going to lower their standards so the women can be here. And I was even in a room once where a male said, well, you know, I have a question. We're talking about equal opportunity. And um, he says, you know, I, I'm, I'm worried that the, the military is going to lower the standard for women. And there I am, qualified field artillery officer standing in that room, having met the same qualifications that my male counterparts had, knowing damn well (laughs) that we have met the standard we're able to be here and we're going to continue to occupy the space so get ready because we're coming it's not stopping and and no the standards aren't going down and we don't want standards to go down just so we can be there like women are capable of as the same things as men and it's not some impossible standard but rather you know you have to rise to the occasion and if that's where you want to be you're going to make it happen and i knew i wanted to be an artillery officer and i worked hard to be there so i, I like to shut down that kind of conversation um and those kind of remarks when i can because it doesn't help anyone and it's not conducive to a team environment. And at the end of the day, we're a part of a team, whether you're a man or a woman, what have you, whoever you are, however you identify, um, you're welcome if you're able to do the tasks, perform and be a leader in a space where it's critical. Love that. I love hearing that. So this leads, in, this leads right into what we're about to talk about next. Women's leadership advocacy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just I, I, I've looked at a couple of your TEDx's mm-hmm. out there. So how did that all come about? Just, you know, TEDx and you finding your voice and becoming that leader out in the world, women advocacy and leadership. Like, where did that, like, how did that bridge, how did those bridge together? I know you were doing the military, you did mm-hmm. all, you know, Miss America, but then we're doing TEDx because when you did it, it was kind of like the new cool thing. TEDx is hard to get on. And, yeah. You know, kudos to you because now, I mean, and we have things like Clubhouse, but because yeah. we have TEDx, TEDx. How did I, how did you evolve to that? How did you how did we get there? So my first TEDx was amazing um, in the sense that it was a student-run program at a high school in Rochester, New York, and I had mentored one of these students um, through pageantry, and she said, "Well, I'd love to have you come speak at my school. Can you submit an application?" And I did, and I'm thinking, you know, what's a great 
thing to talk about uh, in a high school audience. And I immediately knew um, the representation of women in leadership and getting that thought in the minds of high schoolers, because I wasn't even thinking about that so critically as a high schooler. Like, what does it look when we add women to the equation? Why does it matter that we have diverse perspectives um, in any space that we're operating in? And I gave my first TEDx um, at the Allendale Columbia School in Rochester. And it was very focused on, of course, women's leadership. It was very run of the mill for me. Um, Very similar to a lot of different speeches that I've given and talks that I've given. And it was near and dear to my heart, something I care about. Um, But the TEDx that I did in Providence in 2018 was a lot more meaningful to me because it was a personal story. And when I was getting close to my time ending as Miss Rhode Island, I had a lot of um, thoughts about like, what do I do next in life? Like, I kind of feel like I just peaked. Um, It's hard to go to Miss America when you're 23, 24, and then you're like, cool. Like, I don't know if anything I ever do for the rest of my life is going to be that crazy, cool, fun, unique, what have you. Um, So I started thinking back to a quote that I loved and that came across um, my life early on when I was at Syracuse. And it was Eleanor Roosevelt's quote, do one thing each day that scares you. And I mean, this plays back into putting yourself out there, running for student body president, running for office, running for what have you, joining the military, anything. Um, anything in your life, raising your hand when you're nervous and you don't sound like an idiot in class and really have a question. Um, all things that I've like <laughs> dealt with in some facet of my life at some point. Um, so I decided I was going to do one thing every day that scared me for a year. And I was going to write it down on a post-it note, throw it in a mason jar. And at the end of the year, look back at what I had done. And there were some very trivial things in there. Um, but there are some really big turning points for me. And one of those things um, was that I ended up being exactly where I wanted to be. And I enlisted into the military. And of course, I did this. I didn't tell my parents because they were not supportive. I told them after the fact, I'm like, hey, I have an employment after graduate school. And they were like, great, what are you doing? Army. (laughs) Um, But practicing courage every day and making a habit of being comfortable with being uncomfortable has been life-changing for me. And if there's one thing I want people to take away from this podcast, I hope that it is putting yourself out there when you want to shrink, when you feel like you just want to be really small or you don't want to take the chance or you don't want to deal with rejection or you don't want to deal with any of the fallout from what you want to do. It's so easy to just stay in your home cocoon, maybe not run for office. Like that's something down the line. Again, that still scares me. I've been talking about this since I was 15 years old and that still scares me because I know that it's going to be difficult. And I know that's putting myself out there in a totally new way. Um, Competing at Miss America, wearing a swimsuit on national television. Like these are all things that like, elicit sentiments of fear. Um, and anytime you practice courage or you flex that muscle, you level up. And before you know it, the things that used to freak you out become second nature and it's like riding a bicycle. So um, my hope that it, is that other people can take that sentiment, take those words from Eleanor Roosevelt and apply that to their life. Uh, she's definitely a wise woman and Um, just in that statement alone, she's added a lot to my own life.
I love that. I, I, I have a group called a Charm C Media, and I, I had a meeting with a, a team, and it's various different podcasts. And I said, you know, just basically what you just said, I love it. I mean, I can't wait for them to hear this. Everything you just said, be, un- be comfortable, be, be uncomfortable, be uncomfortable. Meaning, go out, you go out your zone. You know, you don't interview the same people that you know. Go out. Mm-hmm. You want to be on my show? Rejection's fine. Keep on pushing. Keep on pushing. Yeah. You, you have broken barriers. You kept on pushing. You keep on pushing this whole episode. I mean, this is amazing. I mean, I'm sitting here like, I should be, I'm sitting here like, I should pay for this episode. I mean, this is amazing. <laughs> Learning so much about what you have gone through and things of that nature. So we have a vice president, mm-hmm. Mala Harris. And um, <laughs> A, do you ever think you would see the day of a woman, of, of a fe- female vice president? B, do you see yourself getting into government? Like meaning let's hop back in that box and let's go after and maybe be, you could be the next vice president, next mm-hmm. next speaker of the house or whatever it may be. Do you see yourself in the three? Cause I mean, you've gone, you've conquered, you've gone, you've, you, you're knocking these goals out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess that's a two part question. You yeah. seen, seen a female president, uh, Harris, and then also now, do you see yourself three, four, five years around the road doing that same thing? So to answer the first part of that question, quite frankly, I'm surprised we didn't see it happen sooner, whether it was a president or vice president uh, who is a woman, but I'm super excited about that. And not only that we have a vice president who is a woman and um, just looking at the, the overall cabinet, the fact that we have a president who's been very intentional about having a cabinet that is representative of different facets of our country. Um, I'm very excited to see how this plays out into public policy in the next year and the next, you know, the rest of his term. Um, My hope is that we do see more equitable policy. We do see policy um, pulling in groups that have been disenfranchised by government in the past and that we do see more empathy in public leadership. Because I think all of those things come when we're very intentional about having people at the table who have a different story or have a perspective that we will never know. We will never have that lived experience and we'll never have to wake up every morning and wonder, you know, what it's like to be in their shoes. We're, we're just able to have that empathy and have that demonstrated in our public policy. So we're not furthering uh, marginalized groups that have been really at the helm of bad policy in the past. Um, So I'm super excited about that. That's the short story there. Um, The second side of that is yes, I absolutely see myself jumping into the realm of politics. Um, I love the military. I love what I'm doing in the military. And I don't think... I had anticipated having a career this substantial um, thus far. Like, and when I say substantial, I mean, I definitely would have still seen myself in the military at this point. But when I joined, I didn't know that I'd be on active duty. I've been on active duty for the past three years. And um, I was a public relations major at Syracuse. And I remember leaving Syracuse thinking, I don't know if I really want to work in public relations unless like I really, really feel organization to my core and want to speak on behalf of that organization. I don't want to just show up at some agency and take on some clients. Like I need to have their message be a part of who I am. So I love that I've been able to work in a public relations capacity for the army um, and still have that combat arms piece and like the traditional soldiering tasks 
as well as the PR piece. So I'm getting sent to a school um, for uh, public communication strategy with the Department of Defense this summer. And I'm very excited about that. That being said, as long as I'm on active duty, I can't run for a partisan political office. So the question comes up a lot, Allie, when are you gonna run? Um, and it's whenever I feel like I can pull myself away from active duty uh, because I love it. And um, I know that's going to be in my future. But when the time is right and the stars are aligned, you'll definitely see my name on a ballot one day. That is awesome. That is, I love hearing that. Love hearing. So what is the best advice you've ever received? The best advice, I'm just going to circle back with what I gave my second TEDx on doing one thing a day that scares you. I live by that. And I think that can shake so much of our self-doubt. It can pull us out of um, uncomfortable spaces we've talked ourselves into. And it's really what I think is the key to living the most full life. And one where, uh, you know, it's it's like you, you regret the things you didn't do more than the things you did do. If you put yourself out and do the scary things, you're going to have a much more fulfilling life. <laughs> And we got so many quotes. There's so many quotes in here. I don't even know where you start. Wow. So we went through the hard part, folks. We went through mm -hmm. the hard part. You guys know how about I do? I do rapid fire. I always do rapid fire at the end. We always do it. All right. Favorite author? Chanel Miller. Um, and she wrote the book, Know My Name. It is a powerful story. She's a new author and would recommend her wholeheartedly to everyone. All right. Favorite music artist? Maggie Rogers, and I think she actually is from Maryland. So shout out to Maryland. <laughs> um, I had to put this in here because I had to take I had to take out a different one. Normally we do wing, we do drums and flats, but we I, I did my homework. I know she doesn't. Mm -hmm. So your favorite vegetarian meal? Favorite vegetarian meal? Um, well, I was a competitive chicken winging champion at Syracuse. My favorite vegan or vegetarian meal is a fried chicken sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite city to visit? Washington, D.C. All right. Blue cheese or ranch? Ranch. All right. Oh, come on. You know, <laughs> you know we're, we could end this right now, but we're going to let you ride with the ranch. That's fine. <laughs> Class at Syracuse University. Public Affairs 101. Oh, okay. If you could interview anybody, dead or alive, who would it be? Stacey Abrams. Okay, that's powerful. And what does success mean to you? It means that I'm able to live my life on my own terms. Love it. Where can we find you so we can follow your story? Because you are doing so many amazing things in this world. And I want people to follow you and just, you know, you know, celebrate you from however we can. Social media. I don't know if you're TikToking. I don't know. I mean, I tried TikTok. I did one TikTok. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just sitting there like. I'm trying. I'm trying to learn. I feel like I'm now like the elder millennial who struggles with the TikTok. Um, but I am on TikTok. I'm on all of the social media. Um, and I'm under Ali Curtis R.I. And then AliCurtis.com. All right. All right. Is there anything else you would like to tell, tell the folks before we head out? Go orange. I love it. I love it. Folks, thank you so much for listening to this amazing episode. Again, this is breaking. I, I'm so excited that I had her on the show. It's a blessing, honor for you to come on. Thank you so much for coming on. It really, thank really you. fantastic. You're doing great things. Just come to Maryland, folks. So we might get a possible sighting this. Yeah. So hopefully let's cross our fingers. If she can fit us in their schedule for like, you know, she's busy. So you gotta give her her assistance before you can get into, into contact with her. 
But hopefully we can get out, eat some crabs, some crab cakes. And that's what Maryland does. So that's what we do. But uh, folks, love, peace, happiness. We're out.